Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Unheard. I'm Freddie Zayers. Have you noticed how emergencies seem to be getting more frequent? Whether it's COVID, the climate crisis, health, drugs, governments and campaigners and corporations all seem to want us to feel that right now, today, there's an emergency going on. Why is that? Is there really an emergency happening right now? Perhaps we should be more vigilant the next time someone uses that word. Well, here in our London studio, to help us think through this is the American philosopher, best-selling author and unheard contributor, Matthew B. Crawford. He's launched his own substack, intriguingly called Arcadelia, which you can check out at the link below. Hi, Matt. Hey, Freddie. So today, we want to focus on this concept of a state of emergency. Um, It's something that has become rather more frequent recently. It feels like various different kinds of emergencies are talked about more and more. And what we want to do is try and drill into it and understand how we should think about it and what we should notice when people are telling us there's an emergency. First of all, what is a state of emergency? Well, I mean, throughout history, there have been crises that could be resolved only by suspending the normal rule of law and constitutional principles. Um, So it could be a plague, uh, a foreign invasion, an earthquake. So a state of emergency is, or a state of exception is declared. And and usually what happens is that um, the legislative function is relocated from a parliamentary body to the executive until the emergency passes. It's like martial law would yeah. be one example where the, the army takes over. Yeah. I mean, in ancient Rome, they, they invented the office of the dictator for precisely those occasions. So something abnormal is happening. The normal processes of government can be suspended. And I suppose with that, the rights that we would normally expect, civil rights and the rest of it, freedoms, are temporarily suspended while this particular crisis is addressed. That's the principle. Yeah, and the, the temporary bit is pretty important, as I think you'd agree. Um, so there's a, there's a political theorist in Italy named Giorgio Agamben, you may have heard of, and he points out that in the liberal democracies of the West, the state of exception, so-called, has almost become the norm rather than the exception. Um, so uh, the language of wars invoked to pursue ordinary domestic politics. In the U.S., in the last 60 years, we've had the war on poverty, the war on drugs, the war on terror, the war on COVID, uh, and now the war on disinformation, the war on domestic extremism. So it sort of, uh, you know, becomes like normalized to have a state of emergency. And I guess since the pandemic, the other word people use is epidemic. I notice now a lot of 
campaigners are saying, oh, there's an epidemic of loneliness or there's an epidemic of drugs, there's an epidemic of whatever the problem they want to draw attention to is, because that gives that same atmosphere of something that needs emergency treatment. Yeah. And I think once you notice this pattern, you, you have a gestalt shift and you realize that the self-image of the West as based on sort of the rule of law and constitutional principles is out of date and in need of revision. And I think with COVID, the fact that that is an anachronism, that description um, sort of snapped into focus for, for everybody or a lot of people. Let's start with COVID since we just mentioned it. Clearly, the state of emergency was absolutely invoked in the early weeks and early months of the COVID era. Um, famously here in the UK, it was supposed to be three weeks to flatten the curve, the original lockdowns. And I mean, talk about suspension of ordinary freedoms and civil liberties. There were no freedoms. You couldn't leave the house. It was about as extreme a state of emergency <clears throat> as you could imagine. And that sort of drifted on. I mean, in China, not known for its civil liberties, they've only just been releasing those rules. So tell us a little bit about that example and what, what you learned during the COVID period. Well, yeah, I mean, the public acquiesced to an extraordinary extension of sort of expert jurisdiction over every domain of life. And, and yeah, sort of it is a kind of Chinese style of governance, as, as many have pointed out. Um, and so the question is, can we go back to being not China? Um, that's, that's the question we're facing right now, I think. But I mean, you were right in the middle of it. You live in California. You observed at close hand, and that's one of the states in the US that has been most extreme in its counter COVID measures. And you observe, I think even still, you say there are people who are walking around with masks on outdoors and doing all sorts of unusual things. There are companies and organizations that have still in place rules that are not required by the government. It's, gone, it's really got to people's souls, that new state of exception. Yeah, and that's where it gets really interesting, right? Because it's not the government telling people to walk around outside with masks. I mean, but there's, there's some sort of attraction in that. And I think, you know, obviously it's, it's a kind of becomes an identity, um, sort of the, the good people wearing the masks, uh, as many have noticed. And I think it's also people are seeking a kind of solidarity um, you know, you can think of sort of the hygiene maximalists as maybe they're uh, sort of dissatisfied with liberal individualism. And here, because it's an emergency, you get to kind of sacrifice your, your freedoms for the greater good. And there was something appealing about that to people. So that, that I think, points to a kind of hunger for some kind of solidaristic politics. So it's almost like a, a reaction against this sort of secular modernity or the liberal era, whatever you want to call it, that there is something attractive about a state of emergency because it gives people a sense of mission or it animates them. Maybe it even calls those kind of you know, primeval instincts we have to be good defenders of our families or communities or things that we don't get to use very much. Yeah, I think there's something to that. Um, there's a cult-like quality to public spaces in the Bay Area where you'll see a, a lot of people wearing masks, which, I mean, it's a curious thing because following the science is not what they're doing, right? There's no, there's no reason to wear a mask outdoors. But again, it seems to have taken on this 
kind of symbolic meaning for people that they don't want to let go of. So has that, having gone through that and seen that at close hand in one of the more extreme places, has that changed your perspective on this? Do you, do you now feel like we are in, more vulnerable to or, or more in, in a greater, it's almost a danger of having our fundamental way of life being shifted through this never-ending emergency? Do you feel differently than you did before? Yeah, I think it has shifted. And I also think that the further normalization of emergency as a, the basic sort of idiom of government is, is, you see it all around. Of course, climate provides the ultimate um, emergency, uh, which is, you know, from the perspective of a kind of technocratic power, is ideal because it's the its problem is essentially in, insoluble or very very long term, and uh, to address it would require a wholesale kind of gathering up of um, power to technocratic bodies. So I mean, you can be fully convinced of you know climate change and the dire consequences of it, while also noticing that it has this feature of being ideal for purposes of um, centralizing power. So the way you're talking just there, it does feel like there is an agenda, or at least there are parts of society, you talk about technocratic bodies that want to accumulate more power, that are using these emergencies, such as the climate, to become more powerful, which gives a different tone to just the idea that perhaps we're a bunch of lost late secular modernity souls looking for something more sort of vigorous to do. Do you think that's true then, that there are parts of the powers that be that are actually consciously using this tactic? You know, politics is a very cynical business, so yeah, of course. Um, but I also think you don't actually need a conspiracy of hostile elites to explain a lot of this. You just need a shared uh, moralism that sort of sacralizes the victim, because that's there's usually some victim that uh, is put forward as justifying the program. Um, so, you know, with the pandemic, it's the immunocompromise as the vulnerable one that we're all invited to identify with. And if you remember in the summer of 2020, um, with the George Floyd protests, it almost seemed like the COVID emergency and the emergency of white supremacism seemed to merge into a single thing. And if you remember, you know, social distancing mandates had to be relaxed for the sake of protest because the protest too seemed to advance the generic sort of poly crisis. And I think one thing you see in that is that a kind of variation on the theme of um, emergency is the utility of moral panics for um, kind of generating that same sense that, you know, normal course of things has to be suspended. So that's almost like a third example that we've, we've mentioned COVID, mentioned climate briefly, and then you can throw in some of those other moral emergencies. I mean, how, how do those moral panics or sense of a sort of moral crisis fit into this, do you think? Well, I think they serve to justify the ever deeper penetration of society by um, kind of bureaucratic authority. So in light of 2020, the, we've had this enormous increase in diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives, which means that this layer of you know, HR um, has gotten a lot thicker. So I guess one thing to notice is that this isn't always the government that is sort of the 
um, sort of be, you know the beneficiary of this kind of politics. There's all kinds of private sector bureaucracies that also feed on a, a generic mood of of moral emergency, and I think our identity politics serves that role. It can, it serves you know there's an ongoing and irresolvable moral emergency, whether it's racism, sexism, etc. So the, it's almost like a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy that just gets worse and worse, because if we're right that part of the attraction to these emergencies at an individual level is that it provides a mission, it it's, it's provides some kind of refuge from the soulless technocratic existence where you know your contribution doesn't matter very much, and yet the, the net effect of it is to put more power in those kind of layers of society and government that just make the technocracy bigger, which is then probably just going to propel people to seek more emergencies. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, hadn't, I think that's well put. What are we to say to people? that if, you, if someone tells you, whether it's in a newspaper or on the TV or you read it on the internet or someone tells you, oh, this is an emergency, what should our first instinct now be? Is it to say, hmm, maybe it's not? Well, I think just noticing this pattern gives you some critical distance on it. And it also gears into this other kind of moralism, which you know I've called safetyism. Um, because if you question the, the whatever measures are being um, taken by the invocation of emergency, you uh, you know you get labeled pro-death or uh, for whatever reason, just not taking seriously the threat. And that kind of safetyism, I mean, that's, that goes all the way down. It's the kind of the kind of parenting we do, sort of insulating kids um, from threats. It's, it's the guy you see riding his bicycle, double masked. Um, and it's interesting, um, so Thomas Hobbes, you know, the, the very origins of liberalism, he, there was a particular problem that he set out to solve, which was civil war. And and civil strife. And the, the problem comes down to the fact that we're proud um, and we put too high a value on ourselves. So then we feel slighted when others fail to recognize us. And this kind of aristocratic brittleness leads to civil strife. And it's based on a false consciousness where we think too highly of ourselves. So for Hobbes, uh, the agenda is to sort of overcome that. If we can think of ourselves as weak rather than strong, um, as a potential victim, if we identify with the victim, then we'll be more likely to consent to this social compact in which we all give up our sort of um, rights to fight with one another and invest authority in Leviathan. So in other words, there's, there's a kind of victimological um, mentality that serves to justify the modern state, is the suggestion here. So the roots of what we're experiencing now actually go back to the beginning of, of liberalism or the, be the beginning of the modern way of self-governing. I think so. There's a political theorist named Mark Schiffman who's written about this, and he takes it all the way back to Machiavelli. But I've, I've been influenced by his thought. So is the idea there that somehow it's the, the weakest in society kind of collectivizing their risk and bringing us closer to, to a a world with fewer bullies, fewer strong men, fewer components in our society that could be dangerous, a, a safer, flatter 
Well, right. Well, it's a moral elevation of the victim. Um, now, obviously, Christianity kind of does that too, right? Mm -hmm. This is the uh, great innovation of Christianity. It's a God on a cross. Um, so, you know, you can trace this even further back. But it's funny, now it seems like we're asked to identify with the centurion, right? As you think of yourself as a victimizer and, and acquire this kind of... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Self-consciousness as, you know, um, as a victimizer. I'm just going to have to investigate this a little bit more. I, uh, we can't just throw in Christianity, I think, in a single sentence, because we have talked about this before. And yes, Hobbes and the sort of beginnings of the modern technocratic state is, is one origin story for this. But yeah, I think you, you've got to be right that Christianity plays its part. In a way, it's the perfect, it was the perfect combination. Uh, a Christian society who then discovered liberalism is doubly geared towards protecting the weak, minimizing risk, elevating victimhood and ultimately getting us to the kind of situation we're in now. So should we put at the feet of the Christian church some responsibility for this worship of victims? Well, I think it's a historical question. Um, I mean, we did have a number of centuries there, quite a few, in fact, where the sort of emblematic uh, sort of form of Christian politics was something like Charlemagne, which is not um, an exalting of the weak. 
I think there's a way to read the Christian story um, as a kind of manly, spirited um, response to the world. And that's a reading of it I think needs to be brought out because um, it may even offer a kind of uh, counter to the sort of victimological mentality and, and politics that we have currently. I'm not sure exactly what that would look like, but my sense is that there are resources within that you know, sort of theology to, uh, to bring that forth. Yeah, I think, I mean, one, um, to have the legitimacy of the state rest on its claim to be able to protect us, that's the decisive uh, innovation, I think, that got us to uh, a victimological politics. And, and it's, we have to think of ourselves as vulnerable or the logic of Leviathan doesn't add up. So obviously in the COVID context, that makes sense that it became the job of the government to prevent everyone contracting a highly contagious virus. Um, there were all these league tables published in publications like the Financial Times as to which government was doing the best job. And this was measured by infection rates and all the rest of it. Are you saying that that should not have been the job of the government or the government should have said, communicated differently and said, yeah, this, is a, this is a virus, we know some information about it, you are still vulnerable to it, here's what we would recommend or here's what we can do to help. But beyond a certain point, it's a virus and that's not a, something that a government can control. <laughs> well, that's what we've learned, right? And I guess that could have been predicted ahead of time. In fact, people did. So think about the Spanish flu of 1918 compared to COVID. There's an inverse relationship between the severity of these pandemics and the severity of our responses to them. Um, and, you know, maybe that's... Now, obviously, in 2020, there was a kind of ambient political crisis dating from 2016 that had already put the establishment on a war footing. Um, but I think also the kind of machinery of technocracy, which is hungry, right? It needs occasions to, to, to flex its muscles, was much further, is much further advanced now than in 1918. That's really the infancy of that. So in that example, you can sort of see what we might recommend or prescribe for the next occasion, basically less. What about climate then? I mean, that's one where there are really millions of young people who, and the Greta Thunberg is the easy example, but there are many of her followers, people who are out protesting with Extinction Rebellion, etc., literally gluing themselves to the streets because they passionately believe that this needs to be treated like an emergency and that everyone needs to stop what they're doing and basically think of nothing else except focusing on the question of climate change. What What is the wiser kind of course of action then, if we, by equivalence, to accept that it's an issue, have some attempts to address it, but just not allow people to get overly obsessed? I mean... Well, I mean, I don't have a prescription, but clearly there's a kind of anti-humanism in this, you know, sort of militant position that we should stop reproducing um, and stop farming and growing food in vats or something. So there's some appeal in, in that kind of 
self-hatred of the human, which is super, super creepy, I think. I also think, you know, that climate catastrophism is overblown just as a matter of, you know, assessing the, the crisis and, but it has to be sort of catastrophized maximally in order to, um, you know, scare people into giving up not just freedoms, but like a whole lot of um, activities that are kind of woven into, into life uh, at every level. Because right, in order to actually reduce carbon, you'd have to radically transform life. And I think the radicalness of it is precisely what's attractive about it to a certain mindset of um, you know, social engineering, because that's what it comes down to, is it's um, an occasion to really get in there and, um, and engineer a new society. The perspective we're almost getting to is that this atmosphere of emergency that is now becoming so commonplace in Western societies, at least, maybe even more broadly than that, is coming out of a disquiet with the world as it is, or at least people's acceptance of it is coming out of a disquiet. And yet it's leading to more of the same or an even less attractive way of running things. I think what's made us acquiesce in this is really propaganda more than anything else. And we saw really a, a determination to control information with COVID that was radically anti-scientific, right? And so, you know, the science was getting settled so-called, not by the usual process of science, but by in, through intimidation and sort of policing of um, hypotheses and um, you know, efforts to make sense of it all. So I don't, I'm not, I'm not ready, maybe in something we said earlier, there was a suggestion that we hunger for our politics of emergency. I don't think that's right. I think, I think there's a kind of patently desperate effort to uh, control discourse and information so as to not interrupt the kind of machinery of emergency politics. And who is pushing it? Who benefits? Well, again, I, I don't think you need to posit a conspiracy here. You need, all you need is a shared morality of sort of sacralizing the vulnerable. Plus, you know, extant, you know, already existing bureaucracies that uh, sort of feed on crisis and need to expand. I mean, that's the iron law of bureaucracy is that they serve their own internal conveniences and interests, and, um, and they, they rarely get smaller. But so there is no bad guy in your Well, it's actually a, it's a, it's a confounding question. I, I, and a lot of other people think about this all the time. What is sort of the ontology of this tyrannical force um, that may be made up of very well-meaning people? Um, and I think figuring that out is maybe one of the most urgent tasks of, of political theory, how we can slide it sort of without having intended to into this kind of propaganda state, this China-like kind of social control um, kind of imperative. Because I don't think anyone really affirms this as what the kind of society we want. Is it 
I guess the two theories then are either it's just the default, a kind of mass hysteria type function, a, a default of what a, a highly technological society becomes without better leadership and without principles that it can understand and want to stick to. It sort of collapses into this tyrannical technocracy. That's theory A, perhaps, and maybe theory B, which I'm sure that many of our viewers will share, is that some people are benefiting benefiting from it, uh, whether they are large corporations, uh, you know, there are elaborate conspiracies touching World Economic Forum characters and all of that. And, you know, people, it, it almost feels simpler to go for option B. It almost makes more sense that there is someone in a room who is guiding all of this and issuing instructions. Well, clearly, I mean, material interests play a huge role in this. And yeah, the pharmaceutical companies and their sort of intimate relationship with government is an obvious thing here. And so, yeah, so that's not, I wouldn't call that conspiracy thinking. That's just not being, you know, naive. So yeah, it's a mix of um, sort of material interests, um, plus this kind of moralism of safety, plus there are also class interests, right? So there's a kind of professional managerial class, which was very little affected by lockdowns compared to you know, people whose jobs require that they actually be there. So, you know, that sort of laptop class idea. So there's a kind of blindness sometimes to the costs of the measures that we did to respond to COVID. So is that class um, struggle perhaps a compromise between theory A and theory B then? You, you then have a, a whole class of people who maybe felt threatened or on the back foot since the populist energy and maybe earlier and are now trying to kind of protect their position and are encouraging this trend? I think you need all three, the uh, the moralism, the class interests and the more concentrated material interests. We had an event last night at the Unheard Club, which um, you gave a talk at. And one of the questions was, is the net effect of your way of thinking um, where we are skeptical of these invocations to emergency, where we are more comfortable with risk and hazard and more permissive about the world as it is, as opposed to a perfect world that we need to try to recreate. Is the net effect of all of that, that people sort of retreat from a society that's too big to change and from problems that are too big to fix? and tend to just their immediate family or their home or even just themselves as an individual, do you think that's a, a, a risk or maybe that's what people should do? What's your response to that idea? I think people want to be left alone as, the, as kind of... So that isn't, this isn't simply a libertarian point, you know, government off my back is not that, but that there's a kind of militancy to this entity, whatever, it's hard to identify this blob, this governmental-like thing that often, you know, corporations are a big part of it, that seems determined to reach into every aspect of life, including the most intimate, and uh, sort of police it and reorder it. And I think people are recoiling against that. So it isn't even a question of, you know, should I try to save the world or just hunker down? 
It's more like, uh, how do I defend just the most um, kind of basic way of life? Um, because it seems to be very much under threat. Well, maybe there is, that is a hopeful note to end on then, because if more people did that better, if more people took back control, to coin a phrase, of more of their own lives and were better at defending against incoming information that they didn't want, whether it's from corporations or governments, had a greater understanding of how these things operate and so therefore were able to distance themselves from it and protect themselves emotionally, you would get a more resilient society where those forces would sort of by necessity be pushed back. I do think it's, you know, one by one from the bottom up is sort of how social change happens. But also it is political because, I mean, uh, you don't have the option of disengaging from this stuff. You've got an HR department at your work or your kids in a school that, again, have these sort of militancy to them. So I think the, res the response, you know, by way of sort of defending the space for kind of normal human activity, normal human life, and sort of ownership over the things that are most meaningful to us, it has to be, um, there has to be, I think, some uh, some actual like political power uh, exercised in reining in these um, sort of messianic, transformative um, social engineering um, initiatives. Well, I'm going to consider that a challenge to our viewers and listeners. Matt Crawford, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, Freddie. Thank you. That was the philosopher and best-selling author Matthew B. Crawford identifying a common thread that links the COVID pandemic, climate change, and the ongoing moral crisis about minority groups and equality. And that is the state of emergency, and the language of emergency. Thanks to him and thanks to you for watching. This was Unheard.